Hello, my name is Nicole. The Old Testament reading is found in Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 6. Now these are the commandments, the regulations, and the case laws that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, to follow in the land you are entering to possess, so that you will fear the Lord your God by keeping all his regulations and his commandments that I am commanding you, both you and your sons and daughters, all the days of your life, and so that you will lengthen your life. Listen to them, Israel. Follow them carefully so that the things will go well for you and so that you will continue to multiply exactly as the Lord, your ancestors God, promised you in a land full of milk and honey. Israel, listen. Our God is the Lord, only the Lord. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your being, and all your strength. The word of the Lord. Good morning, my name is Kay. New Testament reading is found in 1 Timothy 1, 3 through 5. When I left Macedonia, I asked you to stay behind in Ephesus so that you could instruct certain individuals not to spread wrong teaching. They shouldn't pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. Their teaching only causes useless guessing games instead of faithfulness to God's way of doing things. The goal of instruction is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Ken. There you go. If you're able, please stand for the gospel reading found in Matthew chapter 4. Jesus traveled throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues. He announced the good news of the kingdom and healed every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread throughout Syria. People brought to him all those who had various kinds of diseases, those in pain, those who possessed by demons, those with epilepsy, and those who were paralyzed, and he healed them all. Large crowds followed him from Galilee the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and from the areas beyond the Jordan River. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountain. He sat down, and his disciples came to him, and he taught them, saying, The Gospel of our Lord. Please remain standing as we pray. Father, that image of your son sitting down and calling his disciples to himself and beginning to teach them. Would that be our experience today, that as we sit here in your presence, would we be aware of the Spirit of God sitting among us, reminding us of the ways and the teachings of Jesus? Would we hear your voice, and will we come and follow you into the way of life? Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. 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 You may be seated. Good morning, New Life Downtown. It's good to see you. Good morning to those of you who are watching online. We love you. We hope that you are doing well. For those who are new or newer, my name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors here. 
glad to have you with us this morning. Our lead pastor, Pastor Glenn, is preaching up at one of our other congregations today at New Life North, uh, and he'll be back with us next week. We are in the middle of a series right now called Who is God? Uh, It's a series that we started in early January and will take us all the way through May. And the series has three parts to it, one for each person of the Trinity. We spent some time, six or seven weeks, talking about who is God the Father. And now we're talking about who is Jesus the Son. And then uh, after Easter, we'll start talking about who is God the Holy Spirit and carrying through that conversation about who our God is. In this section that we've been talking about Jesus, uh, we spent the first week talking about that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God, the one who has come to deliver the world, and the deliverer himself is God in the flesh, God coming to actually rescue his people and all of creation. Then we spent some time talking about uh, Jesus as the healer, the one who comes and heals us, Jesus, the host who throws parties for people and invites us into the kingdom of God. Last week, we talked about Jesus being the good shepherd. And today, we're going to talk about Jesus as the teacher. If you ask most people uh, to describe Jesus, or you ask them, what do you think about Jesus, or what do you know about Jesus, or what's the first thing that comes to your mind, both those inside and outside of faith will probably include the sense of Jesus being a teacher pretty early on in the conversation. It's one of the things that actually most people can agree on about Jesus, is that Jesus taught. Even in the Gospels, the the accounts of Jesus' life, Jesus is constantly being called teacher, not only by his students, but just anybody that's around him. In addition to that, he himself self-describes himself as a teacher. And so throughout the stories of the Gospels, we see Jesus teaching in synagogues. And we see Jesus teaching on hillsides. We see Jesus teaching in the temple. We see Jesus teaching in homes around tables. We see Jesus teaching as he's walking from place to place. Jesus teaching beside a well. He's constantly teaching. And in those places, he's sometimes teaching really large crowds. Other times, small groups of people. Other times, it's individuals where he's teaching in a conversation with a religious leader, or he's having a conversation with someone who's been outcast for some reason, or having conversations with his disciples and teaching them what it means to live the life that he's called us into. He's constantly teaching in all of these different settings. He is teaching. He's teaching through sermons through sayings, through quoting and interpreting the Old Testament, through storytelling, things called parables, and even through some of his actions. There's acts that he does that are teaching sort of acts. But what kind of teacher is he really? Is he sort of like a Jack Black in School of Rock saying like, I'm tired of all this classical mu- music and I'm here to teach you the way of rock? Or more like Robin Williams, like we're going to start tearing pages out of things and standing on desks. And, or more like Yoda, like the, some you know, wise sage speaking slowly in strange ways about how to live. And what, what really is he teaching? What subject is Jesus teaching about? Is he simply just teaching about the Old Testament? 
Is he teaching some sort of new religion? Is he teaching brand new ideas? What is the sort of main subject that Jesus sets out to understand? And maybe another way of kind of thinking about it is what's the aim or the goal of his instruction? What's Jesus trying to accomplish in teaching us all of these things? I remember uh, several years ago, I had a summer where I decided to be really cool to learn how to skydive. I don't know why I thought that was a good idea, um, but I, I thought it sounded fun. Uh, and I realized pretty quickly on that my skydiver's instruction, teaching, the main goal was just to get me to land on my feet, right? Like this was the whole point of everything that we're doing. We want to keep you alive and help you land well. And over and over again, all of the instruction was geared toward those things. What is Jesus aiming at? with his teaching. The Gospel of Matthew, we're going to spend the bulk of our time today. We'll have a lot of scripture today. So if you want to pull out a Bible and want to follow along or you can watch on the screens, the Gospel of Matthew really highlights Jesus's role as a teacher. It emphasizes in a variety of different ways the teaching ministry or the teaching that Jesus does. In some ways, Matthew, more than the other Gospels, sets Jesus up as a new Moses, as a new great teacher, a new great lawgiver for the the people of God. One of the ways that Matthew does this is he takes Jesus's teaching and organizes them into five major speeches, similar to the five books of Moses in the Old Testament, the Torah. And that first sermon, that first collection of sayings is probably the most famous sermon ever. It's the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus has some of his uh, most famous and most well-known sort of teachings. That whole sermon ends this way, and we'll begin here today, Matthew chapter 7, verse 20. When Jesus finished these words, when he finished the sermon, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he was teaching like someone with authority, not like the legal experts. He was teaching as someone with authority. The crowds here are gathered on the hillside and Jesus has sat down with them and he begins to teach and they've just listened to history's greatest sermon. They've listened to the sermon that really in many ways has changed so much about the world and the way that we think about life and about ethics and about people and they're amazed their eyes are popping, their jaws are dropping, their hearts are bursting out of them, their minds racing. And they look at one another like, my goodness, that was good. That guy can preach. I'm sure part of it was they were just amazed by his oratory sort of skills. If you've watched The Chosen, I just watched that uh, episode in season two where Jesus is kind of off by himself and he's toying with the words a little bit, like crafting the sermon carefully in his mind about how to communicate what he wants to communicate. And I'm sure they're impressed with his skills, but I don't think that was the primary reason that they were astonished. I don't think that's the primary reason that they were amazed. Matthew says they were amazed because Jesus taught with authority. That it was how Jesus was teaching or the way Jesus was teaching or something about Jesus himself that actually captured them in a way that says, this guy actually knows what he's talking about. This guy has weight behind his words. For centuries, philosophers and sociologists and political analysts have sort of spent time thinking about the nature of authority. 
How is that people end up having authority in this world? Max Weber is probably the most famous sociologist who began a lot of these conversations where he recognized that there are different types of authority and different sources from which that authority derives. Maybe the one that we're most familiar with is what's called a formal authority. It's authority that comes with a status or position. It's the authority that your manager or your boss or your landlord or someone who has some sort of legal or formal or organizational authority over our lives has. That there are people that are placed in that kind of formal authority. But then there's something called informal authority, where it's not so much that there's an authority that's based on a rank or position, but just on influence. This is becoming probably one of the more common or more prominent ways of authority in our world with the rise of social media, that there is massive groups of people that have influence, they have authority, they speak in ways that people listen, and yet they have no formal authority. There's nothing that places them in a particular organization or rank. They just have that informal touch. Maybe for a lot of us, when we think about authority, we think about experts. Those who, through education or experience, have authority to speak on something. Like, if you have a question about Hebrew grammar, I might be able to help you. But if you have a question about your carburetor, please don't come to me. Uh, actually, if you have any question about your car at all, please don't, please don't come to me. I can tell you what color it is. That is, and I can go around the back and say like, oh, Ford made that. Um, only by reading the sign. So if your car doesn't have a sign, I can't help you. Uh, I'm really no good to you. But that one time in your life that you might have a question about Hebrew grammar, I might be able to help. Um, no practical help outside of that. There are expert kinds of authority. There are other people that have authority because it's called a, a charismatic authority. There's some personal quality about them as people, that there's a skill or a quality or something about the character that draws people to them. In the New Testament, when uh, the writers are talking about authority, they're really talking about the combination of two things. They're talking about the combination of right and ability. The combination of right and ability. That someone has been appointed to do this, and they have the ability to do it. There is both a authorization and a power, an appointment and a power to do something. And so when the crowds are recognizing something about Jesus, they're recognizing that Jesus has both the right to speak about these things and the authority or the power to be able to speak on these subjects in the way that he does, that there's something about Jesus being the appointed king and the son of God, God in the flesh that gives him authority in these conversations. So they're recognizing that his authority surpasses every other teacher they've ever known. That all of their religious leaders and authorities are like, these guys don't hold a candle to Jesus. That Jesus, as they're listening to him, they're saying, he is the greatest prophet and the greatest teacher that we have ever seen. There's no one greater that has come before. There's no one greater at the time. There's no one greater that has come after. Jesus' teachings are greater because Jesus himself is greater. Jesus' teachings are authoritative. They're the authority because Jesus has that kind of authority. He, there's weight to his words because there's weight to who he is. He speaks differently because he is 
different. He taught with authority because he has that authority. And so to be a follower of Jesus is to actually consider his teachings to be the teachings. To be a follower of Jesus is to say that Jesus is teaching what Jesus says on life and these various subjects, that Jesus is the authority on these matters. So what is it that Jesus is teaching about? What is it is his primary subject? What is the thing that Jesus is most concerned about communicating to us? Matthew introduces Jesus's public ministry this way. It says, from that time on, Jesus began to announce, change your hearts and lives. Your version might say, repent, because here comes the kingdom of heaven. Here comes the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God has arrived. Right after that, he starts calling people to follow him. We see a few verses of him calling his first disciples. And then Matthew 4, 23 says, Jesus traveled throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom and healing every sickness and disease among the people. And then right after that, he launches in to that sermon on the mount. The context of Jesus's teaching is the kingdom of God. What Jesus is teaching about is the kingdom. Jesus taught with authority and he taught about the kingdom of God. This is what Jesus's primary message is. His primary teaching is around God's inbreaking kingdom. He proclaims that the kingdom of God has actually arrived, that it is here, that it is an actual present reality among our, in our midst. It's waiting for a future realization. Not all things are the way that God wants them to be. And yet God's kingdom has already broken in in a real and substantive way into the world through Jesus. The kingdom of God is not somewhere else. The kingdom of God is not someday in the future. The kingdom of God is actually here and now because Jesus has come into the world. And he calls students, he calls disciples to himself to teach them how to live in God's kingdom. This is what Jesus is teaching about. He's announcing that God's come near, that his kingdom is broken in, and now here's how you live in the kingdom now while we wait for it to be fully present on the earth. So he invites us to become citizens in God's kingdom, to learn how to live a kingdom life. Of course, the idea of any kingdom implies that idea that a kingdom means that there's a king and there's a land and there's people. And for those people to be a part of that kingdom, to live in that land, they must live according to the king's law, according to the king's ways, according to the king's ethic, that the king decides this is what life in this kingdom is going to look like. And if you want to be a citizen here, if you want to live as a part of this reality, if you want to live as a part of this space, then you live according to my ways. Come and be a citizen and learn how to live this way. Of course, that makes us a little bit uncomfortable to talk about Jesus as the king of a kingdom who has a rule or a law that he wants to teach us and invite us to follow because there's a part of us that's like, I, I think I'd just rather be in charge. <laughs> it's like, that, that's, that's great. But can't I be the authority? And can't I decide what the kingdom of God looks like? Why is it that Jesus has to be that? But this is the, the claim of the gospels, that Jesus is the king 
And he's the one who's teaching us what it means to be a part of his kingdom. So what is he saying that the kingdom is like? What is he trying to teach us? What is that sort of ethic of Jesus where he says, hey, come and learn this way of life? What does he really want us to grasp? What is the goal? When he says, hey, come and follow me, come be a part of my kingdom, come and live in this reality, what is the way of life that he wants to teach us? Paul summarized it this way to Timothy. He says, the goal of instruction, the goal of all Christian teaching, the goal of the teaching that originates with Jesus is love from a pure heart. It's love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Of course, this reminds us of those conversations that Jesus has with someone who comes to him and says, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? What's the greatest teaching? What's the most important thing? And Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. These are the greatest commandments, and everything else hangs on these things. When asked, Jesus says, the greatest way, the way of life, the way of the kingdom is love, love of God and love of neighbor. And of course, in the Sermon on the Mount, he takes that into a radical another place. In the Sermon on the Mount, he says this, you've heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, not only love God and not only love your neighbor, but love your enemies. Love your enemies and pray for those who harass you or torment you or persecute you. Therefore, verse 48, just as your heavenly father is complete, just as your heavenly father is perfect in showing love to everyone, you also must be complete. Your love must also be perfect. Your love must also extend from God to neighbor to enemy. See, loving our neighbor is the place where we're like, yeah, we kind of like that one. We find it fairly easy to love the people that are like us, to love the people that love us, to love the people that are near us, to love the people that think like us and act like us and talk like us and uh, vote like us and do everything else just like us. It's kind of an easy place to begin with love. But Jesus says to love our enemy to love the one who's against us, to love the one who has harmed us, to love the one who is different from us, to love the one who disagrees with us, to love the one who has made our life harder or more difficult. He says this kind of love is complete or it's perfect because it's the kind of love that God has. It extends all the way to that place. Jesus taught with authority. He taught about the kingdom of God and he taught the way of perfect love. That's what Jesus is wanting us as the followers of him to grasp. The way of perfect love is the way of the kingdom of God. But of course, when we hear that word love, our minds go to all kinds of places. Our world defines the word love in a myriad of ways. We're oftentimes using the word in conversations and talking about very, very, very different things. What does Jesus mean by love. When Jesus is talking about love, what pictures, what images, what does he have in mind? How does he define love? And how does he show love? If he is our teacher, 
if he's the authority, if he's the one teaching us about the kingdom of God, that he's the one that gets to show us the way of love. And this is what Paul says about the way of love shown by Jesus. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Whenever the scriptures talk about love, they are talking about the self-sacrificial, self-giving love of God revealed on the cross of Jesus. When the scriptures talk about love, it's talking about the self-giving, self-sacrificial love of God revealed on the cross of Jesus. It's the love that compelled the father to send the son. It's the love that compelled the son to go to the cross. It's the love that compelled the father and son to send the spirit to help us and to be with us. It's the love that gives. It's the love that costs. It's the love that sacrifices. It's the love that actually makes requirements or demands. It's the kind of love that creates bonds that are thick. What does that really mean? What does that look like? Jesus gives us all sorts of hints. One of the things that we see from the teachings of Jesus is that the love of God demands our allegiance, demands our loyalty. He says it this way in Matthew 6, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other or you'll be loyal to the one and have contempt to the other. You cannot serve both God and wealth. To be a follower of Jesus costs us having other gods, having other masters, having other authorities, making other things more ultimate than he is, making other things the ultimate thing. The love of God demands or requires our allegiance, our commitment, our wholehearted loyalty to God. Like it's expressed in the love of God commanding our obedience. Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, then you will keep my commandments. You will keep my commandments. It costs us something. It costs our pride. It costs our will. Requires a humility or a submission on our part that recognizes actually, I don't have life figured out. I don't know the perfect way of love. I don't know the way of the kingdom. My way may not actually be the best way. For an Enneagram one, that's really hard to believe at any point in time. It's like, I'm pretty sure my way is always the best way. And Jesus is like, no. Like, you're, you're at maybe like 0.3%. And that's just when you're talking about me. <laughs> it requires something from us. We recognize that I don't have it figured out. My way is not the best way. And that's not just in some things. It's not just like, oh, I really like what Jesus has to say over here, but yeah, I don't really agree with him here. It's in all things that we follow Jesus requires us to recognize that we need a teacher. It requires that we recognize that we need help, that we cannot do this. We cannot live the kingdom way of life on our own. So this is why God, in many ways, one of the reasons he sends Jesus to teach us and he sends the Holy Spirit to empower us, to help us because we cannot live the way of love by ourselves. Jesus in another conversation says that the love of neighbor, the love of others requires our resources requires sharing what it is that we've been given, sharing our material wealth. John, 1 John 3.17, this is uh, John saying, but if someone has material possessions 
and sees a brother or sister in need but refuses to help, how can the love of God dwell in a person like that? We live so often so tight-fisted and clenched and like mine, 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 mine. And Jesus says the way of the kingdom is open-handed generosity. We're called to live in this kind of way, to willingly and to joyfully and to sacrificially give, to have particular concern for the well-being of those in need in our community. This is the way of perfect love. This is the way of the kingdom. There's another time where Paul says that the love of neighbor sometimes costs us our freedoms. Romans 14, 15, it's a conversation about whether or not people feel free to eat certain kinds of food. Something so simple, not what we have to eat. He says, but if your brother or sister is upset by your food, you are no longer walking in love. Don't let your food choices destroy someone for whom Christ died. It's a call to give up even our freedoms for the sake of other people. We no longer do whatever it is that we like, whatever we want, whatever feels good. The way of love realizes that our lives are actually knit together with Christ and with one another. That our lives are no longer our own, but our lives are Christ. We belong to him and we belong to his family. We belong to a community. And so for the sake of that community and for the sake of the unity of that community, we willingly live different kinds of lives because we don't live isolated and independent, but connected to Christ and to his family. The love of neighbor oftentimes requires a sacrifice of our selfishness. Paul in another passage says, you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only don't let that freedom be an opportunity to indulge selfish impulses, but serve each other through love. The way of the kingdom, the way of perfect love is a way of service. We're called to serve one another in love rather than to pursue our own selfish interests. There's times that the love of God and the love of neighbor requires us to sacrifice our conveniences, our preferences, our desires, our time in order to serve one another in love. This is the perfect kind of love that Jesus talks about. There's times that the love of of others insists that we speak truth, that we correct and that we discipline. Ephesians 4 says, instead, by speaking the truth with love, let's grow in every way in Christ. Revelation 3.19 says, I correct and discipline those whom I love. God loves us enough to correct us, to discipline us, to say, no, not that way. There is another way to live, a way that leads to life rather than to death. He loves us enough to correct us, to discipline us, to speak the truth to us and tells us to do the same with one another. To love one another enough to say hard things. To say things that are not always welcomed. To say things that are not always received. To say things even when done with love and with wisdom and a desire to help and care for another can sometimes be costly. To speak in that kind of way to one another that we might all grow up in Christ. And of course, maybe one of the clearest teachings of Jesus is that the love of an enemy 
And really, this, the love of any person we have relationship with requires forgiveness, a way of living in forgiveness toward one another. Jesus said, forgive us, or taught us to pray, forgive us for the ways that we have wronged you, just as we also forgive those who have wronged us. The way of perfect love is a way of forgiveness. Now, forgiveness is not the same thing as restoration. That doesn't mean that we don't have boundaries with unhealthy people, that we don't have boundaries with people who have abused us. Those are ways of wisdom. The way of forgiveness does not require that we stay in the exact relationship with everybody. Forgiveness begins by refusing to take revenge. Instead, trusting that person in prayer over to the justice of God. Saying, Jesus, I am not going to take revenge on that person for the way that they have hurt me. Instead, I am going to entrust them to you and to your justice and refuse to take revenge myself. Now, that means sometimes we still have to set all kinds of boundaries and those things in the middle of that require a lot of wisdom. But the way of perfect love is a way of forgiveness. See, when Jesus talks about the way of love, when he talks about the way of the kingdom, the way of love is costly. This is why Jesus describes discipleship as a cross. That he uses his own life and his own death as the most prominent image for what he describes as discipleship. He says in Matthew to his disciples, says, then he said to them, all who want to come after me, all who want to follow me, all who want to follow me in the way of the kingdom, all that want to learn the way of perfect love must say no to themselves, take up their cross and follow me. This is the image we get of discipleship. Too often we talk about versions of Christianity that have no cross. The cross sits at the center of the gospel. It sits at the center of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. But there's another part of that, that the good news of the gospel is that on the other side of the cross, there's always resurrection. On the other side of the cross, there's always life. On the other side of death, there is eternal life. On the other side of cost, there is great joy. On the other side of the cost, we find life, we find community, we find freedom. We find all the things that we're actually looking for in other ways. We don't find them by going after those things. We find them by giving our lives up for Jesus and for his people and then suddenly find, oh, there it is. Jesus puts it this way. All who want to save their lives will lose them, but all who lose their lives because of me will find them. This is clear in Jesus' own life. Jesus lived this way. He came and gave his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. He came as one who humbled himself, became obedient even to death on a cross. He came and sacrificed his whole life. He laid it down for us. And then what happened? Resurrection. He was raised to new life. This is always on the other side of those costs. Discipleship is costly. Love is costly. On the other side of it is true and abundant life. As the worship team comes this morning, we have to recognize in these conversations that we can only give what we have received. And that all of this does not begin with our love. All of this begins with God's love. We can only give 
to others what we've actually first received ourselves. We can only love others with perfect love when we remain, when we abide, when we dwell in the perfect love that God has for us. John 15 says it this way, as the Father loved me, I too have loved you. And so remain, abide in my love. New Life Downtown, you are loved. You are loved by God, the Father who sent Jesus, the Son, to give up his entire life for you. And loved by the Father and Son who sent the Holy Spirit to come and indwell in you that you might know in the very core of your being the never-ending, never-stopping, never-giving-up love of God revealed on the cross of Jesus. The most important thing that Jesus teaches us is that we are loved. And he teaches us how to remain in that love that we might then love God and love one another and love our enemies because the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts. Just stand with me this morning.